Book of Acts. Soaring through scriptures. Here we go. Are you ready? Yep. All right. Let's do it. Book of Acts. You know, Acts is uh, a neat book because it really continues on from the Gospel of Luke. It's like a sequel of sorts, right? How many people have seen a good sequel before? How many people have seen a really bad sequel? We are like, why did they even make this as a sequel? Like they should have just ended where they left off there. Just keep it at the original. Let's not do a sequel or anything like that. Well, this is a sequel here that's full of action, full of excitement, full of life. And it's a, a great book for us to look at as we see things continuing on now from where the gospel of Luke left off here. Okay, the same author writing this here, same author that wrote the book of Luke is Luke. And he's writing the the book of Acts here now for us. And really, where the Gospels end is where Jesus is giving the Great Commission for his disciples about taking the, the Gospel out into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them, uh, whatnot. And so that's where the Gospels end. But now in the book of Acts, we see how that continues on now. Exactly what happened. Exactly what did these men and women uh, serve in the Lord do here with the gospel. So that's really the gospel or the book of Acts here. Seeing the gospel on the go now and going out and beginning to just impact the whole world. Now it's been called, as it probably is written in your Bible there, Acts of the Apostles. And though that's true, we're going to see the apostles going on. We're not going to be seeing the Acts of a lot of the apostles, only the Acts of a few apostles. But what is exciting in the book of Acts is that we're seeing now the Holy Spirit being poured out on the church. And really, I think this would be better said, the acts of the Holy Spirit. Because it's the Holy Spirit that's driving the work right now through those people that God is using to take the gospel into the world. The word, the term Holy Spirit's mentioned some 50 times in the book of Acts. So you see that's kind of a real major theme now as we go through it to see the work that's continuing on now through the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. Now, here's a couple quotes here. Ralph Turnbull said, No book in the New Testament is more appealing as it beckons the church of today to look at the church as it was at the beginning. It is thrilling narrative, striking characterization, and dynamic achievement. Uh, Roy Lawrence said, The story of the church which unfolds in the Acts of the Apostles is one of the most fascinating stories of the Bible. It is the story of young churches in action, not in meditation, contemplation, or worship, but action. In fact, action is the theme as well as the name of the book of Acts. And it's, it is its atmosphere, story, movement, and inspiration. So the key, the key verse to the book of Acts, I think you could make a claim that it would be Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8 simply says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Right? Acts of the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be... Witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. But not only does that kind of set us up as the, the key verse, the, the idea behind the book of Acts, but it really lays out for us the outline, because that's exactly what we're going to see as we go through this book here, that the gospel is going out, first of all, in a Jerusalem, and then into Judea and Samaria, and then to the end of the year. So that really forms our outline for us. Chapters 1 to 7, we see the gospel outreach in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 to 12, we'll see the gospel outreach to Judea and Samaria. And then chapters 13 to 28, see the gospel outreach to the end of the earth, essentially. So like I said, Luke's the writer of the, the book of Acts. He's the writer of the gospel of Luke, named after him. And he's not mentioned a whole lot in the Bible, but he's mentioned in a few places Places, Colossians 4.14, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Philemon 23-24, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. And then 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul says, only Luke is with me. So we see here Luke mentioned a few places, and, and, and he's seen as a companion to Paul. We're going to see through the, the, the book of Acts here that Sometimes this narrative is being written as, and then they went and he did this. But then at other points, you'll see the term, and we went into this. And so that's Luke again now, who's with Paul during that time. And so he's a traveling um, partner of Paul in, in many places. And you see in Colossians 4.14, his occupation, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. So Luke was a doctor. 
in the Gospel of Acts, in the Gospel of Luke, we see a lot of different terminology being given that kind of is seeing things through the lens of a doctor. And so here's Luke now, a, a key guy, I think, for Paul to have on his missionary journeys. Because Paul, man, he lived on the edge of this guy, right? Paul was the guy that's like putting his, his neck on the line oftentimes. And so, man, you are very appreciative when you got a guy like Luke, who's a doctor that's able to tend to your needs, able to help you out when you've got like a broken limb or, a, you know, stones to pluck out of your forehead after a couple stonings here. And so he's a good guy to have around with you. So that's Luke now. Now we see that Luke is writing. Look at chapter one here. Actually, go to Luke chapter one, just to see the beginning of it there. And you'll see kind of the similarities. Luke, go to Luke chapter one. Keep your place in Acts. We'll be right there. Luke writing here says in Luke one, verse one, inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. And then, look at Acts. Chapter 1, verse 1, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. So here he is addressing Theophilus again. Now, some have wondered who Theophilus was. He's referred to as most excellent Theophilus there in, in Luke 1. So some have believed that Theophilus was perhaps a Roman official. He's being greeted that way. Um, perhaps Luke was at one time maybe a slave of his or a, a physician that served those slaves there. And, and so uh, it's possibly that uh, Theophilus got saved and, and kind of allowed Luke to go and continue on in ministry with Paul and, and then to give an account to these things. So we're not sure. Some believe that the, the name Theophilus means friend of God or loved by God. So some believe that Paul was, or sorry, Luke was using that term Theophilus as just a way of addressing all people as those that are loved of God, beloved of God, a friend of God, and he's addressing everybody. That's an idea, but... I would seem to think that Theophilus was a, a real person here in Paul's writing this to give an account. And, and notice what he says there. To give an account of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. So when you go through the Gospels, you're really just scratching the surface of the things that Jesus did, right? Even John would write that even all the libraries of the world can contain all the volumes of books that could be written about the things that Jesus did. So Luke's just kind of scratched the surface, just began to do. But what he's also showing is that this work that Jesus has begun to do is going to be continuing on. That's the great thing that we see in, in the book of Acts, is that the work that Jesus began, he's going to continue to do. And it's not just a work that he came and laid out. It says the work that Jesus began both to do and to teach. In other words, Jesus didn't just kind of speak these things and say, okay, go. he lived it out. Right? He modeled these things. He did and he taught. He didn't just tell people how to live. He modeled it. He didn't just preach. He practiced it. That's, I think, important for us. Right, That we're being people that are, are, are having our talk very much lining up with our walk, our walk lining up with our talk. That we're not just being those that are, are, are peddling some message, but that we're literally living it out, practicing it now in, in how we live. And Jesus did just that. Look at verse 4 of Acts 1, and it says, and, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So remember, before Jesus uh, ascended to heaven, he tells them now to wait in Jerusalem for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, to receive that promise of the Father. That's something that Jesus has been kind of teaching his disciples, preparing them for. It's what we've been covering in the, in the book of John, right? I mean, we've seen it oftentimes here now. Um, look at John 16, 7, for example. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. So also in John 14, verse 16 and 17, in chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus 
is revealing to his disciples, when I go, don't be worried, don't be freaked out, because it's going to allow the Holy Spirit to be poured out. So now Jesus, as he's getting ready to ascend up to heaven to be with the Father, to where he'll be back in his glory, and then the Holy Spirit will be poured out. He's saying, wait now for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit that will, that will come upon you here now. And that will be very, fi- very vital for the, the apostles now to, to move forward, to continue on in the things of the Lord. The very things that Jesus began both to do and to teach, the Holy Spirit will be very vital to empower the church now to live that out, to, to continue to spread that good news. Basically, Jesus is saying, listen, guys, don't do anything until you're filled with the Spirit. That's, that's, a good, that's a good thing for us to take to heart, isn't it, right? Don't do anything unless you're filled with the Holy Spirit, unless you're being led of the Holy Spirit, unless you're being prompted by the Spirit. Don't do anything. Just wait until you know that this isn't a work of the flesh, but rather a work of the Spirit, in other words. So continuing on now, verse 8, that key verse here. Let me read it again. But, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of of the earth so we've already talked about the the necessity of the holy spirit he's our our source of power here right but notice what this power is for jesus says there and you'll be what you'll be witnesses to me in jerusalem that's what this power is for this is what the work in the holy spirit the overflowing of the holy spirit is to enable us to do to equip us for it's to live as witnesses in this world Jesus never said, you'll go and witness. He said, you will be witnesses. Understand, that's not something we're just to go and do as an act or, or as lip service, but we're to be witnesses. We're to, to live this out. It's, it's who we are to be, not what we are to do, right? I think we need to get our, our minds away from this idea of witnessing as an act or something that we just go and do. Yes, there's times for that, but witnessing is what we're to be. All about what we're to be living out day by day, minute by minute. Praying and seeking the Lord to just be a reflection of Him, to be a witness of Him, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, to live this life that will simply reveal Jesus in all that we do and all that we say, in how we act, how we react, how we respond to things, just being that witness through these things. Now, that word witness comes from the Greek word martus, where we get our English word martyr. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? And, and that's really, I think, puts things into perspective for us here. It's the mentality that we're to have. Because what I think happens so often for us is this idea about being a witness. We're like, uh, I just don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if I want to I commit myself to that. I don't know if I, I, I'm ready for the kind of kickback I might get from people or the way that they might receive it. They might think I'm weird. I don't want to be a witness. But a witness is being a martyr. In other words... You're already claiming that it's not about me. I, I, I want to doubt myself. I, that's what Jesus has called us to do already, isn't it? To, to deny yourself, take up your cross, to die to self. And it's only when we're living that mentality where we say, Lord, it's no longer about my life. It's about seeing your life glorified. Lord, I, I want to be that witness. And, and we're going to be effective witnesses when we carry that kind of mentality of saying, Lord, I'm dying to self here. Let me live as a martyr. Let me live where it's not about my life. It's about your life being honored and glorified and seen through me. Now, I'm sure we've all experienced times where we feel inadequate, you know, uh, of being a witness. We don't really feel at times we know what to say or how to direct a conversation. And the truth is that, yeah, we are very inadequate in and of ourselves. But, but that's the key here, what Jesus is proclaiming here. Listen, wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit because then you'll receive power. I love that. It's that word dunamis in the Greek. It's that idea of it just being like dynamite, explosive. There's a power now that's available for us as believers to say, though I might not have it in me to go and, and, and proclaim this truth or even know how to do it, the Holy Spirit steps in and gives me the power where I can be like a real firecracker now. Better yet, be like dynamite now where it's just, it's, it's making a difference here. Making a difference. That's the purpose of the, of the Holy Spirit, to come and fill us and empower us to be witnesses. So we're really without excuse. I know I hear it a lot from people. Well, it's just not my gifting. It's just not who I am. It's just not my personality. 
man, you, this isn't, you know, this isn't a, a choice. This is something that we're, we're called to, to be. We're called to live out lives as a witness. And, and praise the Lord, he's given us the Holy Spirit to empower us, to leave us now without an excuse, without a fallback, without a reason to say, yeah, no, that's just not in me. Well, it may not be in you, but the Holy Spirit wants to be in you, which gives you the enabling to be a witness. That's what we need to rely on. Well, chapter 2 now begins a new era. A new era. Bless you back there. He's excited about that. A new era, which is the birth of the church. Look at Acts chapter 2. Let's read in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here we see the disciples that are all gathered together. And the Holy Spirit is now poured out upon them, and they begin to speak in other languages. Now, notice a couple things. When the people back in Genesis, when they rebelled against God, they decided to build a tower to reach the heavens to say, we want to be our own, you know, gods. We don't want to worship the one true God. When they built that tower, what happened? God came down and confused their languages. He divided them, basically. And they no longer could understand one another. But here in Acts 2, it's as though now through the Holy Spirit, we have a reversal of what happened there at the Tower of Babel. Where now tongues are being spoken, but it's to bring about a, a common goal and, and unity and to proclaim Jesus now. See, they hear the gospel going forth. Look at, look at what we read in verse 11. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Suddenly these visitors to Jerusalem who come and they speak in different languages. Now they're hearing people speaking in their language, the wonderful works of God. The gospel's going out. They're like, wow, how do these guys know how to speak our language? It's amazing. And so we see this reversal going on. And also, I think something interesting to note, when we saw the tabernacle or the temple being dedicated, I mean, God showed up, revealed himself really through fire that came down, right? Kind of showed that this is the place where I'm going to inhabit now. This is the place where you're going to meet me. But now, at the day of Pentecost, there are tongues as a fire coming down. I think it's almost a, a symbol you could grab a hold of to show here's now who God is going to be inhabiting. It's the church. It's the people of God that he's going to fill. It's not going to be in a building. It's going to be in a people that are going to carry out the word of God. That's going to be his dwelling, sealed now by the Holy Spirit here for us. Look at, let's read verse 5 to 7 here. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And then, like I said in verse 7 there, all these people from different nations heard them speaking the wonderful works of God in their own tongue. They were amazed. They're like, these guys surely are Galileans. They're, you know, they're lucky if they know their own language well. I mean, now they're speaking all these other languages. So they know this is, this is beyond just a natural thing. This is a supernatural event that they're seeing here. This is a work of God. Look at verse, chapter 2, verse 38. So here's, here's the amazing thing. Well, let me just read here. Then Peter said to them, repent and be, um, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you, to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he, Peter, testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. So think about this here. Here's Peter, day of Pentecost, Holy Spirit is poured out, they speak in other languages. Peter gets up now in chapter 2, and he's, he preaches this amazing message here of just seeking to draw them to Jesus and who Jesus is. This man who just, you know, a, a few weeks prior was weak, 
full of himself, denying Jesus at the most crucial hour. What happened? Well, the Holy Spirit happened. And now there's a new power. There's a new presence. Peter was emptied of himself and he's full now of the Holy Spirit. And we see this dunamis at work. We see this dynamite power at work now in Peter, who's standing up now, who one moment is, is cowering before a, a slave girl, and now standing up before thousands, preaching an incredible message to where many are saved. That's the difference the Holy Spirit makes in our lives. That's why we so desperately need the work of the Holy Spirit. Listen, on the day of Pentecost, as Peter, Peter preached the gospel, some 3,000 souls were saved in contrast after the golden calf tragedy at Mount Sinai, some 3,000 people lost their lives. Consequently, when the law was first given at Mount Sinai, 3,000 souls died. But when grace was first preached in the church on Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved. The law kills, but grace saves. Grace is the difference maker. And we're so glad for grace. Well, in Acts 2.42, we see the program of the church here. Famous verse, Acts 2.42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayer. So as the church gathered together, they just desired to teach the word, to be in fellowship, to break bread, which is either, I mean, they're having a, a, a meal together, sharing, or speaking of the Lord's table, coming together in communion, remembering exactly what Jesus said to do. Do this in remembrance of me, they're partaking in communion to remember the work of the cross, that work of grace by which we are saved. And they're committed to prayer. These are the things that they're devoting themselves to. 2,000 years, things haven't changed, have they? Things don't need to change because that's the program of the church. That's what it's all about right there, gathering together, encouraging one another through the word of God, through fellowship, through prayer, seeking to grow in Jesus. So, the work is going on. And the Holy Spirit not only comes and he gives a new presence and a new power, but he also provides perseverance through persecution. And the early church here now would be encountering a lot of that. They would be living in a time where, I mean, this wasn't something where the the authorities were just going, oh, well, this is really cute. This is really sweet and nice news. They're, they're going, who are these people and we've got to stop them here. And, and they began to face out persecution, whether it be through Rome or even through their own religious leaders who should have known the truth but have, had become far from the truth and far from God. Now, we read in Acts 5, 17 to 18, that the apostles were imprisoned for preaching Jesus. And they were also freed from an angel here. And so after they're freed, they're, they're brought before the officials now. And they're told to stop preaching the name of Jesus. But then we read in Acts 5, verse 29, it says there, But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. So in the face of the officials coming and saying, Listen, guys, better stop this. Also, it's going to get very bad for you. I mean, their response was simply, Listen, there's nothing... Nothing I can do about it because we need to obey God rather than you guys. We will take whatever you guys can throw at us, but we're just not going to stop because we answer to a, a higher authority, a higher calling, and that's the Lord. Boy, that's, that's some boldness right there, isn't it? That's the Holy Spirit there, giving them boldness and allowing them to persevere through, through persecution. So during this account now in Acts 5, there's one man, Gamaliel. He's a Pharisee, he's a well-respected Pharisee, and he stands up now. And he says this in verse 38 of chapter 5. He says, And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them away, or let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. That's good, good advice. Listen, if this is of God, we're, we're just spinning the wheels if we think we're going to stop it. We're not going to be able to stop it. But if it's a man, it's, it's not going to come to anything anyways. I think that's something that we can, we can kind of see. Oftentimes we're like, oh, we better stop this. We better get in the way. We better. Sometimes I think we can simply say, listen, if it's of man, it's just not going to come to anything. But if it is of God, there's nothing we can do to stop it, to see this run its course here. So listen, verse 40, they agreed with him. And when they called for the apostles, 
and beaten them. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Isn't that amazing? Don't you love that? So they come together. They say, listen, just don't speak in the name of Jesus. They received a beating by it. But they go out rejoicing. Rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. And they just continued on preaching the name of Jesus. They're like, oh, I know the authorities told us not to. But again, Jesus told us to. And, and, and we need to answer to him. He's higher than any other power or authority. And so they continue on now just serving the Lord. I love it. Well, in chapter 6, we see the needs of the early church. Now, getting a little bit more difficult to, to maintain, all right? Certain, certain issues are coming up and people are being neglected. So they decide, let's, let's select seven men, or they're called to select seven men of good reputation and seven men that are full of the Holy Spirit. And so these men are selected to, to now minister to the needs there in the church while the apostles now are freed up to continue on in prayer and in the ministry of the word. Now, of these seven men, one of them is Stephen, who is going to become the first martyr now of the church. Stephen is a man who did great wonders. He did these signs among the people. Uh, chapter 7, verse 8 says that Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. But it got the attention of some from the synagogue of the freedmen, which were Jews from uh, different areas. And, and they weren't happy with what they were hearing from Stephen. So they came and confronted him, but they couldn't match his wisdom. And so they resorted to grabbing others to falsely claim that he was blaspheming, kind of like what they did with Jesus. Let's bring some false witnesses our way. Say he did this, he did that. And that's what they do with Stephen now. And that led now to the great sermon by Stephen in chapter 7. It's the longest recorded sermon in the New Testament here. And in it, Stephen takes the people now, his audience, through Israel's history to show that the people of his day are acting just like their fathers did all through history, where they continually kind of rebelled against God. It culminates in chapter 7, verse 51. Look at that with me. Chapter 7, verse 51 Stephen says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Man, that's a real cheery sermon right there, isn't it? That's a, boy, that's not going to bring people back to church too often hearing that word right there. But that was the truth is what Stephen's saying to them. Listen, guys, do you understand that you're being stubborn? You're resisting it, the Holy Spirit as you always have, just as your fathers have. So he's taking them through all of Israel's history to reveal that. But that statement is kind of the straw that broke the camel's back here because they got angry at, that, at him saying, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. They got angry at that. And so they pick up stones and they eventually stone Stephen. But even at his point of death, tells us in verse 60, look at chapter 7, verse 60. As he's being stoned, as he's at the point of his last breath, he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he'd said this, he fell asleep. Wow. That's amazing, isn't it? I don't think you can do that unless you are full of the Holy Spirit. Where you're no longer thinking about yourself. You're no longer going, how could these people? You're just going, Lord, be glorified. And he prays for these people. He's truly being a, a martyr now. Martus, witness. He's not just a witness, he's a martyr here. The first martyr of the church. So the passing of Stephen, we come now to another major character in the book of Acts. And that's Paul, or Saul, as he was known first. And Saul is right there witnessing now and condoning the stoning of Stephen. Saul is a Pharisee. He's got a lot of, a lot of clout. And he's there. He's there seeing the, the persecution of the church through. All right? But now with the death of Stephen, it had an interesting effect. Because here's now the people trying to silence these voices for Jesus. But through Stephen's martyrdom, through his death, 
it caused the gospel to begin to spread out. Just as Jesus said was to happen. Look at chapter 8, verse 4 to 6. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Acts 8, verse 4. They went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. So we see there that the gospel now is continuing to move forth. It's going out. It's spreading out beyond Jerusalem here. Chapter 9, we see the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Again, like I said, Saul was a strict Pharisee. One that saw himself as blameless when it came to the law and upholding the law. He thought he was blameless, perfect. Yet, yet he was perfectly okay with imprisoning and killing followers of Jesus. It's funny how you can turn a blind eye to certain things, big things, when you think you're finitely, very, very much so, upholding all these little minute things. And yet turn an eye to the bigger things, like murder. I mean, that's pretty serious, isn't it, right? And yet Saul seems pretty okay with that. So here's Saul, he's on his way to Damascus, chapter 9, to hunt down Christians. And on his way, he gets knocked off his high horse here. He meets the Lord. And he's knocked down to the ground. And notice here, Saul asks two very important questions. Look at chapter 9, verse 5. Or sorry, let me, let me back up here. Let's just go to verse 3. As Paul journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, first question, good question, who are you, Lord? That's a question every person needs to answer. Because your eternity rests on it, doesn't it? It's the same thing that, that, that Jesus brought his disciples to when he asked Peter, who do men say that I am? And then Peter, but who do you say that I am? Oh, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Oh, you, you've answered well. Every person needs to answer that question in their own lives, personally. Who are you, Lord? Because it's going to then determine how you respond. And there's only one way to respond, and that is in, in repentance and in receiving the Lord in as your Savior. Your eternity rests on that. So Saul is asking, who are you, Lord? And the Lord says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So Paul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, second important question, Lord, verse 6, Lord, what do you want me to do? So who are you, Lord? And Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you have for me to do? Those are two very important questions to ask, to ask in our, our own lives. And I hope you've, you come to those answers for yourself. That you've understood who the Lord is to you personally. And you've understood what the Lord has for you to do. Ultimately, it's to live our life glorifying Him. Living as a witness, to just put it in a nutshell. Living every moment where we say, God, shine through me. Be glorified in me. Let you be seen, Jesus, in everything that I do. Now, this chapter here, chapter 9, shows us the, the humbling or the emptying of, of Saul. Just as it had to happen with Peter. Emptying in Peter had happened with Saul as well. And so we see the emptying of Saul, but the making of Paul. Because not only does Saul get knocked down, but he's now blinded. So in other words, he has to be led into the city, and he has to rely on a stranger to come and, and heal him. So Saul's getting a little bit of, of humble pie served his way. And not only that, but then as he begins preaching Christ, he begins to... to be the number one target of the Jews who seek to kill him. They don't like that this man now is preaching Jesus. And so he starts seeing and feeling the persecution that he himself was, you know, uh, giving out to other believers. And then it's so much so that he had to be protected and he had to be lowered down by a basket to be escaping out of the city. So here's Saul, he's ready to come in on to Damascus with his great power. He's led into Damascus blinded, needs to be healed, and then eventually led out, being lowered down in a basket. I mean, that's, that's some humbling right there. That's good. Sometimes the Lord needs to do that. It's just, again, empty us 
of ourselves so that we can have more room to be filled with the Holy Spirit and, and his power. But then Paul goes to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles. But everyone is a little skeptical of Saul, right? Saul's getting the cold shoulder until Barnabas comes around. Look at chapter 9, verse 26. And, and when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So all the disciples are like, man, we don't trust this guy. He's, he's like some double agent right now. Like this guy, no, he's a spy or whatever. Like we don't trust him. But Barnabas comes along. And Barnabas, his name simply means son of encouragement. That's exactly what Barnabas did. When all the other disciples are given the cold shoulder, Barnabas comes along and says, Paul, here, I'll take care of you here. Let's go. I'll, I'll, I'll take you in here. Barnabas is doing just that with Saul. He's encouraging him. That's a great ministry to have, isn't it? We don't often think of encouragement as a ministry. But let me tell you, it is a great ministry. And it's something we all can do. Where we can just come alongside people and just speak a word of encouragement. You know? Just, just look to lift up other people by the things that you say, by the way that you just desire to, to bless them or encourage them. Say something that is just going to you know, fill their heart with just joy. Because that's a great thing to do. It's a great ministry to have. And you too are blessed by it. Well, in chapter 10, we continue to see now the gospel on the go. Peter's called to go and share with Cornelius, the centurion in Caesarea. And, and Peter was given the vision, remember, to, to show that he must not call anything unclean. All these different foods come down. Peter's like, no, I can't touch that. It's unclean. And, and, and the Lord said, don't call that which is, is common, unclean, the, the things that I've made clean. And so it was a way to show that, Peter, you're going to be invited now into Gentile territory. And we're going to take the gospel now into a, a greater way. There's an open door now to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Look at chapter 10, verse 34. I love this. Chapter 10, verse 34, then Peter opened his mouth. This is after he's been in the home of Cornelius. And he said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Isn't that great? God shows no partiality. God's not partial to this group of people. He's not partial to this type of people. He loves everybody. And he's given an open door for all people to come in and receive life, salvation, and forgiveness of sins through his son, Jesus. Peter? And he had a, he had a hard time with this at first. You understand? But he followed along in that open door. And he gets the blessing of seeing now how the gospel is going forth now in a greater way. Well, in Acts chapter 13, we begin to see the first missionary journey. So Acts covers three missionary journeys, uh, primarily uh, with Paul. Um, all of them are with Paul, but different people uh, accompanying him. So in Acts chapter 13, verse 4, to chapter 14, verse 26, we see Paul's first mission trip. But before they embark, let's just look at how this was done, how they're sent out. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. So Antioch becomes kind of the hub, the sending church now. This is a very uh, big area in this time. And so this church here was, was flourishing, and it becomes kind of the, the sending church now. And they'll, they'll, we'll see that they'll come back to this church after their missionary journeys and kind of give a report update on all that's gone on. But notice, these guys were sent out by the Holy Spirit. There's no like marketing strategy. There's no demographic study to be done here of how to do this and what to do. They just had a heart to get the gospel out and they're being led and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. And so on this first mission trip, here's a little map here. 
Giving a bit of an idea, there's Antioch just up, up in the middle there, top, and uh, hit Seleucia first and then on to the island of, of Cyprus. And so from Antioch down to Seleucia, they sailed south to Salamis on the island of Cyprus, northeast to Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. From there, they preached the gospel across the eastern part of Asia Minor, going to Lystra, Derby, Iconium, and Perga, and Italia. Finally, they sailed to Antioch, where they've been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed there in chapter 14, verse 26. We see that happening. But while in Lystra, Paul underwent some difficulty. All right, look at Acts chapter 14, verse 19. It says there, Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. So Paul had already been Iconium and, and, and Lystra. And... Um, or sorry, Jews from Antioch and Iconium, yeah. So he'd already been in those places. Now he's come to, to Derby and, and he's there. Or sorry, he's in Lystra. Let me get this all straight. All right, he's in Lystra. People that have heard him in the previous cities that come now, and they're like, man, we don't like this message he's given out. We've got to silence this guy. And so they, still, they, they, they leave him, they drag him out of the city, supposing him to be dead there in verse 19. But look at verse 20. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city and the next day departed with Barnabas to Derby. It just boggles my mind here when I, when I read these things. Because here's Paul almost taking a fatal blow, right? He's, left, he's literally dragged out of the city. He's left for dead. They think he's done. He's dead. But the disciples gather around him, no doubt praying for him. Comes, he's, he's revived. And he gets up and he's like, all right, guys. Let's move on. What's the next city? Where are we going next? I'd be like, guys, take me somewhere safe. Take me somewhere warm. I need to just rest. I need a little vacation. I've just been almost murdered here now. I need a little bit of a, a downtime right now. That's kind of how I probably would have been approaching this. But Paul's like, all right, what's the next city? Let's go. Let's move on to Derby now. I mean, that, am- that amazes me. That's the kind of heart that Paul had again, living as a witness, which is being a martyr, just saying, Lord, I'm ready to lay my life down here. Now, chapter 15, even though there's been a lot of great things happening, men can still kind of get in the way, and a big debate erupts over how people were to behave as followers of Jesus. What is the real means that they come in? What, what's the requirements, essentially? And so in chapter 15, we see this Jerusalem council unfold here to decide what to do, because there were some saying, well, listen, all these people... They still need to be circumcised. They should still keep the law of Moses. So they're looking to bring them still under different regulations and, 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 and legalism. But then others are saying, no, they don't need to do any of that stuff. That's a whole different... We're, we're saved by grace now. So in this Jerusalem council, it's a defining moment in the church because it was a battle between are you saved by your works or are you saved by grace? And so after a lot of discussion... James now speaks up and he says this in chapter 15, verse 19. Chapter 15, verse 19. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood, or from drinking blood. So basically, they concluded this. And there was... Basic four basic instructions to Gentile believers: one of morality and three of sensitivity. So morally, they were to abstain from sexual immorality. All right, no longer be engaged in loose living, which is a common thing in that day as it is in our day. Just hold back from that. All right, keep it for the marriage bed. Right. So abstain from sexual immorality, and then the three areas of sensitivity had to do primarily with with meat and different eating habits. Now, James wasn't putting Gentiles under the law of Moses in these things, but rather under the law of love. See, there's a higher law that we need to carry out where we go, listen, I might have the freedom to do this, but I want to look to my brother and sister and go, I don't want to have an impact on their lives in a negative way. Out of love for others, I'm going to put my freedom aside so that I might be a, a greater blessing to this person that may not have that same kind of view or, or freedom in those areas. We're saved by grace and not works, 
but there's still responsibility for the believer to carry out. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23 to 24 says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. So let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Listen, there's three stances that we as believers can take today. Legalism, liberalism, and liberty. Legalism adds to the word. Liberalism takes away from the word. And liberty enjoys the freedom found in the word. And we have much freedom today as believers. So you'll, you'll hear probably more about that next week in Romans. But, but even there, our liberty does not mean license for all things. There's still responsibility for the believer. Now later on, Paul will free Gentile believers from these last prohibitions about the things, you know, eating and stuff like that. The only one that still stands and is relevant for today is that call for sexual immorality. That was the call in the Jerusalem Council. And yet it's interesting that today, what would you say is most under attack today is sexual immorality. It's the thing that the world seems to say, oh, anything goes. You, you, you want to be free? Then practice freedom in that area. And just do what you want. And so that's the thing that's more and more just under attack today. It's the very thing that was, was to be upheld right here in the book of Acts. Now in Acts chapter 15, we see the second missionary journey that Paul embarks on. This one had a bit of a rough start, however, because there was a dispute that arose between Paul and Barnabas over whether to take John Mark with them or not. Because Mark had apparently ditched him on the first missionary journey, and that kind of left Paul a little bit bothered. And he's thinking, Barnabas, we're ready to go again, but we're not taking Mark. I don't want to hear him whining about being homesick and wanting to go back and see mom, so we don't want to take him. But Barnabas was Mark's uncle. So he's got some family ties here. He's a little bit more biased. He's like, no, listen, he's, he's going to be fine. We've got to take him. And so there's this dispute that arises. They're like, Paul's like, I'm not going with Mark. No way. He was a hindrance. Barnabas like, let's... So they decide to separate ways. They go their own ways. But instead of this being a a division, as it was to some degree, I think it's awesome because what we see God doing is doubling the work and doubling the advancement of the gospel. And this is God's way of just simply saying, hey, listen, guys, it's time to separate and let's see the work unfold in a greater way. Because we're going to find that Paul, later on in his life, man, he's, he's thankful for Mark. He's calling for Mark to come. And, and, and be it aside. So this wasn't a division that led to any kind of, of bitterness. No, this was just a temporary thing that was like, no, I think it's better for us to do it this way. So Paul moves on with Silas. Barnabas moves on with Mark. And, and God just doubled the mission teams now. And on Paul's second mission trip, they went through Lystra and Derby first, where they picked up a, a new traveling companion there, which was Timothy, chapter 16, verse 1 to 3. Uh, talks about them meeting up with, with Timothy. And then in chapter 16, verse 4, look at that with me. Chapter 16, verse 4. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders of Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. So that's really what they were doing on these journeys here now. They're going through strengthening the churches in their faith. And seeing the number of people following Jesus just just being added now and growing exponentially. Now, Paul had some intentions on the second mission trip to to move on to Asia, but the Spirit forbid him, it says. Then he tried to go to Bithynia, and again, the Spirit wouldn't permit him. But then Paul receives a vision of a Macedonian man calling out, saying, come here and help us. And so Paul did just that. I love how the Spirit will close one door, but then open another. How we need to be careful when we might feel the Holy Spirit saying, no, not this place, not this direction, that we don't just sit back and go, okay, all right, then I'll just wait. I'll just sit back and wait for that to open. Paul doesn't do that. Paul just remains on the move. Okay, if it's not here, then I'll go this direction. Or if it's not this direction, how about this direction? Let's see what the Lord will do. Let's see what doors might open. And Paul's doing just that. Let's go to Asia. No, okay, not good. Let's, how about we move on to Bithynia? No, not the, not the place. Oh, how about we move on to Macedonia? He receives a vision, confirmation to go to that place. That's where the Lord was going to have a work um, happen there. So the first stop in Macedonia was Neop- Neop- 
Neapolis, however you want to say it, Neapolis, and then on to Philippi. And in Philippi, they were jailed because, again, they're preaching the gospel. Look at what we read there in Acts chapter 16, verse 25. So here they are in jail. And, okay, let me back up. Let's go to verse 24. Having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, that's not a comfortable situation to be in. They had already just received, verse 23, many stripes, uh, uh, you know, the scourging. So they're uncomfortable. They're in these stocks now where they're, they're kind of doubled over. This is a difficult position to be in. This is not comfortable at all. They're in prison. They're in the stocks. Their backs are, are just laid open. But what do we see happening in verse 25? But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. That's amazing. What would have been your attitude in that situation? What would have been your response? Would, would singing to God have been something at the front of your mind to do? And that, I don't know if it would have been in my life. I hope it would be. I pray it would be. I trust at that moment the Holy Spirit through His power gives me the enabling to do that. But, but boy, when we think about that situation, the, the pain He's in, the uncomfortability that He's in, and yet here they are singing hymns. They're, they're worshiping God. They're praising Him. And as they are, the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, in verse 26, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loose. Let's keep reading. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep <clears throat> and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Because if any prisoners escaped under your watch, you would have been killed. So the, 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 so the guard is just going, I better just take matters in my own hands. It's going to happen anyways. Let me beat them to the punch here. He's about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced having believed in God with all his household. Isn't that wonderful? Here they are now worshiping God. God does the work and God tends to their needs. He leads them into this man that just got saved out of what he's just seen and witnessed. And now the apostles who were one minute beaten, left uncomfortable, are brought in, tended to, and fed. Man, when we have the right attitude and we just say, Lord, in whatever situation I'm in, I, I, I pray that I will be a person that is just praising you every step of the way. Because I believe that changes things drastically. And we see it happening in, in Paul's life here and the other apostles with him. Now, Paul eventually ended up in Corinth. Corinth is a very immoral city. All right? It's kind of like the, the Las Vegas of, of the Bible times here. It was a place Paul was initially a little apprehensive over. But in Acts chapter 18, it says this in verse 8. Sorry. Yeah, let's go to verse 9. Now, the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, Acts 18, verse 9. And God said, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I'm with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in the city. Paul had been in the city for a time and thinking, there's no use. This place is past the point of no return. There's, there's no way we're going to see anything happen. And he's fearing. That's why the Lord has to come and say, hey, don't be afraid. But speak out. Because I have many people in the city. You know, the Lord oftentimes is, is working behind the scenes in ways that we just don't understand and don't realize. We might see it one way, but God's got a whole different way at work. And He's unfolding His plans. And all He needs us to do is just be faithful in those times. Continue on trusting the Lord. Because so often He's working things out behind the scenes that we have no idea about. So when things begin to look bleak, don't be quick to pack up, but rest in the power of God's presence and promise. Paul ended up staying now in Corinth for a year and a half. Worked as a tent maker and enjoyed a fruitful ministry there. Something he wouldn't have, have been able to experience if he had just packed it up and left as he had 
no doubt wanted to. But then he comes back to home base in Antioch for a time. And then we move on to that third mission trip now. Chapter 18, verse 23. On to chapter 21, verse 17. That third missionary trip where Paul just goes back to many of the places that he had already been to. Where he just further encourages and strengthens the churches there. In Acts 19, we read of Paul's stay in Ephesus. All right, He was there for three years. The longest stay that he had in any of these cities that he had had ministered to. But it's while here that he has this fruitful ministry where the idol makers now were beginning to lose business, right? They're thinking, we're going to have to close our shops down because all these people now, they're hearing this message and they're not buying their idols any longer. They had a great temple to Diana there. And so one of the idol makers, Demetrius, calls the other workers of this trade together and they conspire to get rid of Paul. And so this great uproar happens in the city and all the people gather into the theater and they're just shouting they're just crazy and it's funny because it, it says that some of the people didn't know what all the ruckus was about they're just kind of going along with the crowd right they don't they don't really have any idea what's going on verse 32 chapter 19 verse 32 some therefore cried one thing and some another for the assembly was confused and most of them did not know why they had come together right so there's all like you know kind of what we see happening today with different protests going on everybody's just Comes together. What are you protesting? I don't know. I just saw a bunch of people holding up signs that had come and hang out. And people don't know what's going on half the time. But that's going on in Ephesus here. But this uproar, I mean, Paul sees this going on. They're all in the, in the theater. And, and Paul's ready to go in and, and, and confront them and wonder what's going on. But the disciples are like, Paul, bad idea. Don't do it. You need to get out of here because these guys are going to come and, 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 and take your life from you here. So... Paul moves on, he went on to Greece, the Macedonia, but he wanted to get back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. On the way, he stopped in Miletus, and there in Miletus, he calls for the elders of Ephesus to come down and, and visit with him, where he has a very heartfelt farewell with them. It says in Acts 20, and I love this passage here, Acts chapter 20, look at verse 22. Paul says, and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. <clears throat> and that's Paul's heart here. He's been hearing in so many places, different prophets have been coming to him saying, Paul, I mean, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be in, in deep trouble there. Change and tribulation are awaiting you there. He's heard that. But Paul's response is, I'm okay with that. Because my heart is just to lay down my life for the gospel. None of these things move me. Paul didn't care what the outcome might be as long as he himself saw himself carrying out the work of God. All he desired to do was finish the race with joy. And the ministry to which he's been given by the Lord. And he knew the Lord was in control. He knew, well, if that's the time that God has for me to be done, then that's fine with me. That doesn't move me. It doesn't bother me. I'm ready to lay my life down. My life is not my own. I do not count my life dear to myself, he says. Oh, man, that's the place that we need to be where we live with just that freedom to say, God, I am wholly yours. I do not count my life dear to myself. If you are counting your life dear to yourself, then you are going to be greatly hindered in the way that God uses you and works through you. If you're counting your life dear to yourself, if you can come to the place you say, God, my life is yours, then you're going to see just great things that God will do in you and through you. And Paul was living that out. That attitude is further seen in, in Acts 21, verse 12. Look at verse 12 of chapter 21. Now, when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, oh, the will of the Lord be done. <laughs> The disciples were continuing to say, Paul, don't go. Man, it's not going to be good for you if you go to Jerusalem. Paul's like, stop it. 
I'm ready to go and not only bow, but I'm ready to go and, and, and die in Jerusalem. And so they just kind of go, well, all right. Will the Lord be done? I guess that's just the way it's got to be. And that's exactly what we need to pray, Lord, just your will be done. Oh, I might have my way. I might have my ideas, but Lord, your will be done. Now, when Paul gets to Jerusalem, he's again confronted by a mob who's ready to kill him. They take him outside the temple. They're ready to, uh, to kill him. But the, the Roman guards see this kind of, you know, ruckus going on. And he steps in. He breaks it up. And it led Paul to being put on trial after trial now. So the rest of the book of Acts is Paul in Jerusalem on trial before the Sanhedrin. And then he gets moved up to Caesarea Maritima, where... He's there for two years, and again, under various um, questioning and trial there, he, he faces questions, first of all, from two governors, Ant- Antonius Felix and then Portius Festus, and then also by a king, Herod Agrippa too. Paul will eventually play his Roman citizen card and appeal to a higher power, Caesar himself. So Paul's then put on a, on a cargo ship and, and set sail to Rome. Now, Paul had a desire to get to Rome. He had, he had said to um, uh, a group of people, oh, man, my, my desire is to, is to be with you, to, to get to Rome and to see you. So Paul had a heart to be there. I don't think he imagined it to go down this way. But it's interesting because I think, I think this is just God's work in Paul's life because he's leading him every step of the way. Two years Paul has now under house arrest in Caesarea Maritima. It, listen, it's right on the Mediterranean Sea. It's a beautiful, it's a, it's a great vacation destination spot. I mean, so here's Paul, you know, tears. He's having company with people. I mean, I think the Lord's just saying, Paul, you need a little bit of rest right now, okay? I got more work for you in store, but right now, I'm just going to give you some mandatory downtime, some rest right now. And Paul, to throw in a little bonus, I'm going to give you an all expense paid to Rome. All right, I know you want to get to Rome. I'm going to take care of that for you. Right? So Paul plays his Roman citizen card. They're like, well, okay, to Caesar you go. And he gets sent off to, to Rome. All expense paid trip. This is great. God has it all worked out. Now, Paul wasn't an easy trip by any means. I mean, you, you know the deal. They have to go through various storms. They are fighting. They, they finally get shipwrecked in Malta, where, uh, again, just God does a great work there in Malta and eventually gets to Rome. Now, it says in chapter 28, verse 30, we're going to just skip to the end here. Chapter 28, verse 30. And it says here, Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God, and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. You know, it's amazing that here's Paul. He's probably got different Roman guards chained to him. He's under house arrest, under his own rented house. But no doubt guards are probably there with him, chained. Because he talks about how, I mean, there in Rome, he even saw different people getting saved that were chained to him. So this is amazing. You know, God just says, Paul, I know you want to be a witness. That's You dedicate your life to that. Well... I'm going to bring the people to you now. And, and guess what, Paul? They're not going to be able to walk away when they don't like what you're saying. They're going to be chained to you. You're going to have a captive audience of these guys. And so can you imagine these guards just, you know, every few hours, a new guard coming in, and Paul's like, hey, all right. How much time we got? All right, I got a few things I, I want to share with you here. I mean, they got nowhere to go. They can't go anywhere. And so God just gives them people now where Paul's just sharing, where we see in some of Paul's other writings where Many people just came to faith and were instrumental there in, in, in Roman, in, in Caesar's house. So pretty awesome, pretty cool. God just taking care of Paul. Now, that's the way the book ends. It kind of ends where it's like, all right, well, what happens next? Well, here's the great thing is that the book of Acts is continuing to be written because the church is still alive. That's what the, the whole book of Acts is about, the gospel going out, through the Holy Spirit at work in the church and taking this good news to the world. And that's the role that we still play. We don't know uh, from here now, it just ends. We don't know what, what happened next in a sense of how things continued on. We do know what happened to Paul later on here. But the idea is simply this, that 
this story continues on. Continues on because the Holy Spirit is still alive. The Holy Spirit is still at work desiring to see the name of Jesus glorified in the lives of his followers. Are we taking that mission? Are we taking that gospel to the world, to the areas of influence that we have? Because that's what the Lord is calling us all to do. You'll receive power of the Holy Spirit has come upon you and it will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. May we be those continuing on this great legacy that we see started in the book of Acts. And see it continue on until Jesus comes back again. All right, let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we are just so glad and grateful to have some time again to be refreshed in you and to hear from you and your word. And what a great story in the book of Acts, just seeing the, the history of the, of the early church and, and the way that they took the gospel out in the world. And today we live where we've seen the world just have heard the gospel and yet still so many people. Lord, need to hear that good news of Jesus Christ. And you've called us all and you've equipped us all by your spirit to take that word out and to be witnesses. So I pray that we would take seriously that calling and we live our lives in a way where we're not counting our lives due to ourselves, but rather saying, Lord, your will be done. We want to live as a witness. We want to lay ourselves down so that you, Jesus, might be more readily seen and glorified in and through us. So help us, strengthen us, and fill us afresh anew with your spirit that you've given to us freely to carry out this work and empower us. Lord, we need that. We need that. So as you do that work now, lead us on from here now and be with us and, and use us now. We ask in your name, Jesus. Amen.